So now I'm going to stick to the running order. And my running order says Richard Reza. But you will have noticed... Right, there you go. It's nice to see you. Nice to see you. No, I remember. So, so he, he's. Uh, you don't want to speak for him then. No. <laughs> so he won't be first, obviously. And then, obviously, second is Marsha de Cordova, who isn't here either. Uh, she's the shadow minister for disabled people. Is that that right? Very shadow. So we have a, we have one perspective on a position there, anyway. So uh, so we're going to go straight. We miss those two. We'll come back to to Richard, and we will go straight to the third one on my list, who is uh, excellent in my view. And I will hand you over to Miro. Uh, hello, everybody. Hello. hello. So I'm just going to speak for about five minutes or so. Um, because, and what I want to do with my five minutes, really, is just to ask people in the room to reflect and consider their actions and how they contribute towards either the oppression of disabled people or the emancipation of disabled people. And the reason why I say that is because it's our daily actions that contribute towards the extensive marginalization that disabled people experience on a day-to-day -day basis. And if we look at, the, look at it in terms of the UK as a whole, well, our current governments show complete and utter dis disregard for the lives of disabled people. We've seen that in terms of the United Nations uh, Committee highlighting the human catastrophe facing disabled people and yet the response by the UK government is just to dismiss it. We have legislation, we have United Nations charters and committees that provide us with frameworks for how to realise disabled people's inclusion within society, and yet the reality on the ground is nowhere near reflecting that. And what I think is fascinating, we can look at you know, the excellent work by the likes of uh, Disability News Service and other academics and, and um, uh, activist networks and user-led organizations that demonstrate the, lit, you know, the, the, the examples that highlight the, the barriers and the marginalization that people experience. And that's reflected in terms of disabled people facing uh, or experiencing such hostility and violence when trying to access support, the correlations between death and assessment procedures, and so on. But what I think is fascinating is when we look at, for example, when activists put up uh, clips, YouTube clips, social media clips of them experiencing intolerance and marginalization, and yet everybody around them just goes by. You see people being denied access to transport, of being distressed because of uh, engagement with uh, medical professionals and so on, and yet the media doesn't highlight it, Yet people scrutinize and, and try to uh, demonstrate hostility. And even in those social situations, people just walk past and ignore it. And what I think we need to do is consider how do we ensure that people politicize their own experiences. And that's really the key message for me, is to say, how do we do that? How do we ensure that people place their everyday experiences within a broader historical 
and societal context to illustrate that when they do face marginalization, they don't necessarily absorb it or internalize it. They recognize that they are experiencing something which is, more broad, which is part of a much broader social structure that seeks to fragment us, that seeks to challenge us, and seeks to ensure that we are silenced when we're trying to actually have a voice. So the need to politicize people's experiences is essential within this. And by that, what I mean is, is that I want to see more people being involved in activism and social movements. And we can talk about you know, the need, for example, uh, of having uh, you know, spaces for people to come together and, and, and reflect, disabled people's assemblies. Historically, we've had that, but much of that has been lost due to austerity cuts and due to other issues uh, that many people have talked about. But what I want is to think about how do we form a collective resistance which offers a vision for the future. And what I mean by that is I recognize that many of our activities and campaigns are in the here and now. We are trying to prevent the, the violence, the destruction of life, the further institutionalization and marginalization. And whilst you know, there's no, that's no fault, but we are permanently stuck in the crisis-driven agendas. And yet we don't have an offer of a vision for what do we mean by a safer, inclusive, accessible environment and society. Where is the vision that we can offer to everybody to say, this is what society should be built like? We don't have that, and the right continue to fragment us, to take away the resources, so we, have, so we end up fighting each other. And what I'm grappling with, and what I would like us just to think about, perhaps in the, in the audience discussion later on, or and after this talk as well, is how do we have that space to build that vision for an alternative way of being and functioning, which ensures that human rights and social justice aren't conditional on the basis of economic developments and political objectives. Because disabled people's experiences illustrate how it's so easy to roll back on the advancements that have been gained by many activists and groups. Because our social justice and human rights are conditional. They are based on whether they meet the economic and political objectives of the state. So we cannot just rely on rights. We also have to have a vision, a vision that we can offer to other people. And that's where I think I would like to start with, uh, with engagement uh, you know, now and in the future as well. So thank you for your time. If you, you keep hold of the microphone. Uh, is this microphone? Oh, yes, it is. Uh, we, what I'm going to do is we are going to have a couple of questions after each talk, but because I know Richard is uh, going to go somewhere else afterwards, I'm going to let him talk now, and then we'll have a couple of questions about the both of them, if that's okay. So if you could uh, give the microphone to Richard for me for the moment. Uh, this is Richard Reza. Uh, Big in disability, uh, education, etc. He'll let you tell you about it. Yeah. Um, I was going to make my comments a little wider this time. Um, because I think I agree with what Miro said, that the strength of the movement determines what rights we get. And our movement has been moved back a long way, both here and internationally. And we're living on uh, borrowed time of other people's campaigns, which set up, for instance... Uh, representation at an international level here and so on. But as the recent uh, arguments around the Global Summit on 
uh, disability, which the government tried to hold as a smokescreen for uh, their castigation by the UN Committee in Geneva, being the only country in the world that is now held to special measures on their breach of human rights of disabled people, the only country in the world that is held to account every year now for, for what they haven't done. Um, so it was quite interesting seeing the disability movement, what remains of it, mainly through Dipak and Rofa, trying to challenge uh, the government. And what I hope we can establish in the next year or two is a, at least to start with inter for international affairs, one voice for disabled people in this country. And I think that's very important because it was, after all, the disabled people's movement started in the 70s and on into the 80s through your pious and then into um, the British Council of Disabled People, later the UK DPC, that made the running on a global scale and led to the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which covers more than a billion people. But what I notice in engaging with that, it's a hollow. There is nothing there when you actually push it. There are a few people who have got their careers carved out of this, but a mass movement isn't there at the moment, and we have to build it. And it has to be a representative mass movement, both here and around the world. Because, after all, it's no good the UN saying that accessibility is a fundamental human right, which they do say now. So there's no excuse for there being no access. That's a breach of human rights when it's not done. Uh, but we don't have the strength to implement it. So we have to build the strength both here and abroad. And uh, the issue that I'm most concerned about is developing uh, inclusive education for all, all children and young people around the world, which is an undertaking in the Sustainable Development Goal that by 2030, every young person will have access to a quality education. That's every young person. It's not everyone apart from those with autism or apart from those who don't speak or apart from those who are deaf or apart from those with cerebral palsy or no all so how do we get to that and i believe the only way we'll get to that is by actually building a mass movement again around the world which represents us so eight years ago i was the representative uh here for the commonwealth disabled people's forum which covered five and a half, uh, 500 million people across the Commonwealth. It was quite effective when it lasted. It couldn't, we couldn't get it funded, and then there were too many egos in there, particularly one person who basically blocked the whole thing. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how to look at it, he died in February, so I now think we can move forward and move the whole thing forward. And the problem is, in our movement, egos do make a difference, and we all have big egos, even to have got where we are talking from the stage here, because it's a hard, uphill struggle to get yourself heard as a disabled person. But we have to have uh, solidarity with each other. We have to have agreed goals. And it seems to me that the time has come to start that discussion about how we rebuild our movement here. But also, as we were the leaders on a world scale, we have a responsibility to all those disabled people around the world to ensure that the things that we fought for and won in the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities are not perfect, but it is a bastion 
of human rights, which if implemented, and incidentally Labour is committed to the full implementation of that, so that will mean that we have a, a framework of rights far stronger than the Equalities Act, uh, because there are many, many things in there which are not covered by the Equalities Act. So that's my message is, please, if people want to do that, let's find a way of going forward to, first of all, join up here, join up across the country with a common cause, and then uh, to our brothers and sisters abroad so we can help them. Thank you. Would, uh, would anybody like to ask a question? Someone at the back. Uh, you say it, I can hear it, and then we'll, I'll say it out again. Or no, he's going to give you a microphone. Here you go. Yeah, I've got them both. Greedy. If you could say your name and then your question. Yeah, uh, my name's Ke uh, my name's Kendrick Fowler. Uh, when I was, uh, it's a question to Richard. When I was uh, in school in the early nineties, um, I, I was learning disabilities, and people with learning disabilities were basically separated from the main classroom. Um, I'm just wondering if you know that's still the case or if the uh, schools today are more inclusive for people with learning disabilities. So the, qu the question was, is, is basically segregated education still a big thing? Richard. Yeah, unfortunately, it's with the austerity measures, the cutbacks in funding in schools and the privatisation of the school system with academies, it's worse. There are more children excluded. The numbers in special school is at the highest level ever. And... Uh, Academies are actually closing things that did work. Resource bases and units are being shut at a great rate of knots. The secondaries closed, 20% of them closed last year. Basically, those heads don't want disabled kids in their school. Even when they're bright and able to pass 11 pluses, they still don't want kids on the autistic spectrum, for instance, in their school. So there's widespread prejudice and discrimination when we, on paper, say we've got a, pay a system where everybody can be educated together. Labour is committed to that. It's going to be a hard role to get there, but uh, we're doing a reference back this afternoon, which will be the first step on it to make it absolutely clear that our education policy is based on the principle of inclusion. From that, we can build it to deal with all those issues. Uh, any anybody else got a question? Oh, someone there. If someone will take the microphone, if you again, give us your name and then your question. Hello, my name's Sandra. Um, Obviously, hearing about the conventions of rights of disabled people in terms of the Equality Act, I mean, obviously, it's a very, it's a very different uh, perception, isn't it? It's coming from a very, very different place. And um, I'm just wondering if, if people have got any idea about how we start to make that a more prominent, um, obviously, uh, uh, piece, of, piece of legislation rather than the conventional stuff that the government uh, would put out, like the Equalities Act and the Care Act and so on. OK, uh, I think Miro could uh, give us some wise words on that. Well, I think a good starting point would is to recognise that the majority of disabled people have never come across the UNCRPD, no, no. United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So there is a major need to actually recognize that when people are facing injustice, there are these opportunities that will facilitate the inclusion of disabled people that provide the guidance, to, for example, in terms of the UNCRPD's general comments on different articles. 
that can provide us with examples as to how to advance uh, action within our local and, and national frameworks in, a, in, a, in order to push forward. But what I would say as well is that I am concerned by when we discuss rights, rights always tend to be in a discussion around conditional issues. For example, so when the, like, I'm sure Richard will, will, will want to say something on this as well, but when, you had, when we had discussions around the UNCRPD um, ratification in the UK, there were reservations placed on numerous articles. And yet there is a general acceptance within society to actually have discussions as to whether we want to place restrictions on the, inclus on the inclusion of certain groups within society. And so, yeah, what I want to see us do is actually challenge that and challenge the, the normative practices that actually suggest that exclusion of certain groups is acceptable. And to do that, we need to actually, you know, as I said before in my, in, my, in my five minutes, it's to take that conversation outside those of our networks and circles that we frequently discuss, discuss with. Because it's very easy for us to speak to those who already acknowledge the marginalization of disabled people and accept that it's an injustice and it needs to be challenged. The question is, is how do we offer an alternative vision for the way society is organized to those who are... Uh, are happy or content to actually have a two-tier uh, education system, or are happy and content with disabled people being trapped in their homes because assessment procedures uh, don't actually acknowledge the uh, support needs of the individuals. So really, I want to see more pressure being done to not only raise, raise awareness so people recognize that that is actually there and can actually campaign for it, but also to challenge the extensive uh, effect that has gone on for so long, which says fundamentally that exclusion and segregation of certain groups is acceptable and should be discussed uh, within our within our society. Okay, thank thanks for that, Miro. Uh, uh, I know because uh, Marsha, do you want to speak next? As you don't have a, a lot of time. Okay, okay. So the next speaker, I'll hand over now to Janet Price. Hello, <clears throat> it's really nice to be here. Um, I'm going to pick up from the things that Marsha and Richard have been talking about because I, I want to talk both about how we deal with the prejudice and discrimination that disabled people face on a daily level. Is it, is it on? Can you hear me? My voice isn't very loud, so if, if I disappear, wave a hand and I'll... Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but also the issues that Richard has been raising about looking at these, um, this work on a global scale rather than just locally. There are a billion of us around the world. You know, that is not small numbers. We ought to be out there in force and fighting. And I don't understand why our voice isn't heard more loudly. And if you add to that voice of the disabled people, the people who are alongside us supporting us, that should be 2 billion, 3 billion, 5 billion. So what happens? Um, I think one of the things that, you know, we're, we're all so familiar with the negative stereotypes we face. Um, the Daily Mail's been very good at establishing us as scroungers. Um, and if we're not scroungers, we're hopeless and helpless. Um, so one way or another, we're really not much use to society. 
But I think it's interesting to look at the different models we have for understanding disability. It's clear that there's the sort of welfare model, the medical model, and then we've worked so hard within the disability community to push the social model of understanding disability so that people are really looking not at our impairments but at the discrimination, the prejudice, the lack of access. And I think that's a crucial thing to continue to focus on because people do not understand that. They don't get it. But beyond that, for me, um, I think we have... We're, we're talking about social model. It's about the cultural ways in which disability works in the world. And so we have to recognise that our bodies, our social context, the world around us... All of those are formed. I'm one of three sisters with multiple sclerosis. We, all of us, have emerged in that struggle very differently in terms of how we deal with it because we're different peoples. So our cultural response to it and our cultural construction through our bodies is very different. So I think we can't say bodies are not part of the social model because they are as much affected by the society we live in as anything else. They're not simply this medical um, separated thing. So I really would like to put those back into the mix. Um, I also think it's interesting, we look at the UN Convention and it says very clearly disability is a cultural thing. It doesn't have a neat list of what disabilities are around the globe. It says disability depends on where you live. So in one country, albinism will be a serious disability. In another country, autism will. But they might not be included in others' lists. So this is something that is very locally determined and will be understood differently. And we have to get our heads around that, that on a global level, we're looking at different ways of understanding and comprehending how disability emerges. Um, but we're doing all of this in the context of a worsening neoliberal situation. And one of the things that is happening because of that, the increasing inequality, qualities, the worsening work context that people are facing, the worsening living context. And I'm very interested in where we put the really large numbers of people, for example, from the war in Yemen or Syria. We have a whole generation of young people who have grown up without enough food, so they won't have grown, their brains will have got stymied at some level and won't have developed. Now, they may not fall into a nice, neat disability you know, disability definition, but there is something really serious has happened to them, and they will face the prejudice and discrimination in society because of the things they can't achieve. And there's a word been floating around, which is debility, and I think this has interesting connotations because there's serious problems with how debility has been understood. But we've got a very large group of people who aren't disabled, but they are by no means living at the full scope of good health and good context in society. And where do we put them and how do we engage them in this struggle? Because that's billions of people and it's growing. You know, our parents with dementia, where do they come? You know? They're disabled, but as they move down that road, the beginnings of it, they won't be disabled because they haven't got there yet. You know, it's, it's that slide and we can't work out where it goes. And I think, I think there's conversations we need to have. I don't know what the answer is, but I 
deeply think there's conversation we need to have about this. Moving on from that, I want to say, what can we do to make a difference? And I would say art, art, art every time. I'm passionate about the role that art, you can see I throw everything on the floor, <laughs> the role that art can play in making a change for disabled people. I think I'm a member of DADAFES, the Disability and Deaf Arts Organisation in Liverpool, but I've seen right around the world. In India, there are groups now setting up um, Merchants of Madness festivals, you know, festivals that are really dealing with psychosocial things, people hearing voices, people with deep levels of stress, really trying to work and look at how poetry, at how theatre, at how creativity can really make a difference to these people for understanding what is happening to them and understanding their place in society and what they have to offer. You know, same is happening in South Africa. There's great groups working there. There's a woman called Marlene LaRue. She set up a really interesting project with women, disabled women who'd faced violence. Um, and she just got the best photographers, the best makeup artists. I mean, not my style, but she got them allowances for clothes and they dressed up and they felt, one woman said, she said, I felt like a princess on that day. I never thought I would. And she wept and she wept because somebody had actually made her feel good about living in the body in which she lived rather than the prejudice she constantly faced about it. And the, the film of that has spread around the world and has been a point for discussion you know, not, it's not everybody's cup of tea, but it's about what does happen to disabled people who face such extreme levels of violence and then who feels that negativity you feel about yourself when you've experienced violence, when you feel a sense that your body is worth nothing. How do you come back from that? This was one way. There's many other ways. And arts play a central role in that. Dada Fest has a festival here this year all throughout November, I'm going to wave a leaflet at you. If you're in Liverpool, if you're not in Liverpool, come back anyway. It'll be great, or it'll be on the web. Lots happening, and we are working globally. So, as Richard said, this really matters, the global connections that we made. Dada Fest is a global festival, and we pull in people from all over the world. So, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do again. Let, let the second, uh, let another person speak uh, before we have a couple of questions. So I shall ask Marsha if she'll speak now, if that's all right. Uh, thank you for being here, and let it go. Um, hey, I've lost my voice, so you have to bear with me today. But um, hello, everyone, and I am really pleased to, to be here. And I just want to extend thanks to the World Transformed for actually putting on this event. This is pretty much the only event for disabled people. Um, unfortunately, in the conference or on the conference hall or conference floor, there isn't much for disabled people. So I'm really thrilled to actually be here. So when we were first talked about, you know, the event that was going to happen today, it was really about what the left should and could be doing. But I think before we can think about that, you've got to, we pretty much have to look at the, the state of affairs for disabled people now. And I'm certain most people in this room would actually agree that 
what's happened for disabled people is nothing more or nothing short of what is a hostile environment that has been created by this Tory government who have been hell-bent <clears throat> who have been hell-bent on demonising disabled people for the last eight years. And that is just reflected through the policies and the decisions and the choices that they have taken, believing that the disabled people's voices can't be heard. And they have done that through suppressing our voices, but also through dismantling the welfare state, also through cuts to local government and to services locally, dismantling the voluntary sector and disabled peoples-led organisations. Make no mistake, that's all been part of their long-term plan and their strategy. There's no question about that, and that is austerity, and that's what it has done, which is why I'm so thrilled that we are having the conversation today. If we think about it just, what, two years ago, when the UN committee, and I am not going to use the full title, I'm going to use the Committee for the Rights of Disabled People, because I believe that is the terminology that should be used. And when they said that this, the, the Tory government's policies systematically violated the rights of disabled people, and when their chair said that it was a human catastrophe, that is no joke. And I said it at a fringe earlier today. This government should be ashamed, but they are not ashamed. And I will say this, I blame the last Labour leadership for that because they chose not to be the voice for the voiceless. They, yeah, I will come to that, but they chose not to be the voice for the voiceless. And that is why I sit here and say, I will do my very best to be your voice because I believe our voice needs to still be heard. Remember, three years ago, the Labour leadership voted against preventing cuts to social security for disabled people. I don't, I, it's shocking that that happened, but believe me, I was there, it did happen. But I know under the leadership of Jeremy and John, we have supporters and we have those voices that will keep that flame alight for us and ensure that we will build a society and build a Britain that genuinely is for the many and not for the few. And that is so fundamental. And you all know that you have the support of Jeremy and John. I know we have the support of Jeremy and John in all that we do. But if we just start, if we think about some of the issues that has taken place and some of the, the cuts that have taken place, it has taken high court rulings for the government to actually stop what they are doing. There was the PIP, the PIP legal judgment that said that the government's policies were blatantly discriminating against disabled people. It was the brave people that took the, the, the government again to court for universal credit and the removal of the severe disability premium. This is essential financial support to ensure that we can all live independently. But it was the high court that had to say no. And it wasn't Labour and opposition that allowed this because had they have been effective back then, we wouldn't be in the mess that we are in today. Already this year, the government are having to undertake five reviews because of their hostile environment policies, which is outrageous. And you all know that it is outrageous. But you know, there is a light 
at the end of that tunnel because Labour in government will ensure that we incorporate the UN conventions for persons with a disability into domestic legislation so that we can travel and use public transport so that we can access a social security system, so that we can go into work and stay in work. And we have to, rem and we will aim to try and remove those barriers to discrimination when in work. And that is so important. We have to look at removing the access to work cap because it's an arbitrary cap and it isn't actually causing or helping anybody. And we will all agree that we believe in an inclusive education system. And I know that Richard has done stellar work on in this area because it's important. Because growing up for me, if my mother didn't fight to keep me in mainstream education, she had to take on the local education authority back then. And if she didn't fight to keep me in mainstream education, they would have put me in a special school. And comrades, I can tell you, had had she have lost that fight. I know I wouldn't be sat here today. I wouldn't be a member of parliament and I certainly would not be the shadow minister for disabled people. So I am very grateful for all that she has done. And I will keep that flame and keep that fight for an inclusive education for all because it is so important. It's But one key area as well is about participation and it's about being able to access voting and being able to take part in elections. Because I believe at the moment I am just one of six self-defining you know, disabled people in Parliament. That is not enough. I am there and I am facing so many barriers but I will face those barriers friends because I want to ensure anybody, any of you, anyone that wants to come into politics, come into parliament behind me, won't have to endure those barriers. And we need more socialists in the Labour movement, but also in parliament. Because Parliamentary Labour Party, there are only a few of us, and we need more. So opening up politics to people and actually opening up access to elected office for people is so crucial and it's so important. All of the democratic parts of the Labour Party need to be open and need to be more inclusive. And I know I've kind of went off a bit there and moved away from, from the hostile environment stuff. But what I just want to kind of finish on ultimately is, you know what, Labour was the only party in the general election last year to produce a manifesto with and for disabled people, nothing about you, without you. And it's my job to continue to build on that, to ensure that social security isn't just seen as some form of, you know, this benefits, benefits thing. Social security system is a safety net. It is there for those who need it, and it is there for us all in our times of need. The social security system should also be viewed in the same light as the national health service. That is how important it is and that is how fundamental it is to ensure that people can live independently. You know the next Labour government will scrap all of the assessments for the work capability and also for personal independence payment. You know that... You know that a Labour government will also be scrapping the punitive sanctions regimes because they do not work and frankly, they should have never been introduced for disabled people in the first place. And that's a fact. But, but for my final, final thing. Make it your final one.
It will be my final one. <laughs> it will be my final one. But what I will say, you know, next month is going to be the 10th anniversary since the introduction of ESA and the Work Capability Assessment. And yes, I know it was a Labour government. It was the new Labour government that introduced it. But believe me, after the election of the coalition government, they made the, the work capability assessment even worse. And we do know it has caused pain, misery, and in many cases, death and suicide. And believe me, I again will be fighting to ensure that we right that wrong and right those, right those injustices that have taken place for the disabled people. Solidarity to you all and thank you Thank you once again for having me. Thank you. Uh, Rich, Richard, uh, Marsha has to go. Thank right. you for... Uh, I just want to say one thing to Marsha no, before Marcia, she goes. Richard has one thing to because say. the trade union movement was quicker than the Labour Party to take up disability issues, people like Mar uh, yourself, Marsha, ma actually got empowered through the trade unions and then came into the Labour Party. Yeah. For anyone here not committed, join your union and... Join your local Labour Party. That's where the battle is going on now. I'm giving out two bits of paper, one about the uh, SEN and another one about what's going on globally. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, there's a sudden rush of exits there. So uh, uh, anybody have any questions for the two people uh, leaving and uh, one there? So who's going to hand the microphone out? Because I can see the person who wants it. There you go. Um, first of all, I'd like to have a word. Is it, is it Paul? No, it's Richard. Uh, Richard, I beg your pardon. I was in, in mainstream schools teaching art where I was grandiosely thrown out and bullied, quite frankly, and told not to talk about it, but taught very many able and gifted artists. One who went on to an art college degree, she had... Autism, but she was also severely dyslexic. And I used to say, What do you see? And she'd say, I just see a load of lines, Miss. What was on the paper? But verbally, the exam board would not let her take, and it's like an annuisis where she spoke it. Both me and the head of the department fought for that child to speak her A level, and she, there were two other people who became teachers. But they weren't disabled in that way. And she was splendid. She could have spoken it. And she told me when I was in primary school, the teacher used to shit. I always had my hand up and I could verbally express myself. She said, and she just, you're stupid. That child was told, you're stupid. But trying to address this lady, my husband's disabled and I love him. And this point about anyone can be disabled at any time. Anyone can get an illness, anyone can get old. That has to be, you were talking about like, how do we push ourselves? How do we make ourselves miserable? Miserable. How do we get angry? Well, it sounds terrible, but use their tools. Look at the number of disabled people. You've got like people like Stevie Wonder, Ian Drury, who wrote terrific songs about disability. You've got people like Frida Kahlo. She's almost a goddess. She's, she's become iconised in art galleries. They've done it before. You you should have done it before. The art galleries did it and got in there. And and this thing about the people in sports, not every disabled person is going to be able to run 
around the track so that people are actually cheating in and saying, making more. That shouldn't happen. You know, it's, there's just so much I could say as a... I'm saying non-disabled person, but you can't see inside my head, so there you go. It's a perception, and you've really got to shove it down people's throats. Absolutely. When I, I'm computer stupid, but there's many young people here who are so com savvy and computer literate and so good with imagery. Use them. Get them. Make the government give you money to... And another two children I found who was skissing a friend of mine who had, sadly he's dead now, Huntington's career. And people tended to think he was drunk. And I took them to one side. And when I explained it, they said, oh, we're sorry, we're sorry, mate. Because it's not expressed in schools, because that education has, has been dumbed down, because people are fighting, you know, for, for everyone to have be the very best person they can be, whoever they are. I just feel so strongly about that. I'm sorry. No, no, it's a it's bit right. inarticulate. It's, it's all right. But, but my, my heart. But we are, we are going to move on, but thank you very much. Okay. There's a question over there, but I'm going to say goodbye to Richard because Richard's off. Uh, thank you for coming. And top top of the stairs there. That's all right. Thanks for coming. And uh, I'll get you ask your question. If you say uh, your name, that would be very nice. My name is Grindle. And I'm an immigrant. <laughs> um, so what are you going to do about it? But anyway, um, I'm, one of my questions is towards the aid agencies who are working overseas, and particularly in war zones. And we don't actually hear, if we're talking about international collaboration, um, and working together on an international level, there seems to be quite a large silence at uh, aid level in terms of how many people are increasingly becoming disabled because of war, because of violence. We hear it as though there are just this one huge population of refugees and people, but... I think there is an abs abs tip of the iceberg in terms of what we know and understand about levels of disability and how much of that disability is coming from violence and war in different countries across the world. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm going to respond just very briefly to both of those, to, to you. I want to say um, there's a lot of great work going on with young disabled people. I will agree that it's appalling the way that the um, special schools are coming back. They're sort of thriving, but not, if you see what I mean. Their numbers are increasing, but young people are not getting a great education in them. However, there are really exciting possibilities around. I mean, Dada Fest, Miro was part of this, runs a, a program called Young Rookies, which has a whole bunch of really bright, really smart young disabled people in it. And they put on shows at the Phil and at the Everyman every year. And they're creative. They do work with the local museums. They're constantly creating new ideas, new challenges. I mean, one of the last things that came out from one of the special schools last year was a song around um, the Equalities Act and the UNCRPD and it was a song just challenging people as to why they didn't listen, why they didn't listen to what the convention said and why they didn't listen to what young, pe young disabled people were saying. And it was a great song, it ought to be everywhere. So there's, there's material like that coming out and it's happening but it's slow. There's a programme called Crip Hop working with young, um, young disabled um, 
people around the world. And it's a guy from America who's linked together people from this country, from the Africas, making their own music, making their own disabled hip hop. And that's been really powerful. Um, just on the, on the question of refugees um, and disability, it is appalling. The numbers aren't, well, but the numbers aren't counted of disabled people within war zones, even before the impact of the war itself. Um, I've been working with a friend from the Cameroon, and she's had to um, become a refugee. But we've worked a lot with friends of hers still back in the country. And they say that there, disabled women are being burnt in their own homes because there is nobody to help them leave. You know, everybody runs away and they are left behind. And there's a, an inability to see this from the, from the agencies and from the, you know, the people that should be out there offering support. So there's a really scary level of ignorance and, really, again, discrimination against disabled people in war zones itself. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, you, you want to ask a question up there? Could you, could you hold it one second, actually, because I'm going to let uh, Julie speak first. So we're just going to let the next speaker speak, because we are running out of time, but I will come back to you, I promise. And if I don't, shout at me. So uh, I'll hand you over to... Uh... Uh, OK. Um, I'll stand up, because I speak better when I stand up. Um, I'm a member of the European Parliament for the Northwest now, but I actually am a poet and I'm a theatre maker and I worked um, running an arts and disability organisation across the whole of the north of England uh, for uh, a few years. Uh, uh, and I've, um, within the European Parliament, I'm a link MEP with the UNCRPD on the Culture and Education Committee. And so I, it's wonderful for me to be here and to listen to people, to keep how people keep talking about the importance of arts and culture as a tool for social change, as a tool for uh, communication, um, as a mechanism, I think, by which uh, the movement can both understand uh, the context and also uh, express uh, demands. I think that's really important. Um, I want to tell you two stories. Um, before I was elected, uh, the summer before, I went to the Edinburgh Festival and I answered a call out from the comedian Mark Thomas. I think that's the guy, isn't it? The, yeah. And because he was doing this um, 100 acts of minor dissent. And um, the call out in Edinburgh was to go and uh, basically camp outside the ATOS HQ and to assess ATOS's ability to assess. Okay. It was a really incredible action. And there were people there from all over, um, you know, local people, but people who'd come as tourists and visitors. Uh, the disability community was out there, very angry. Uh, grannies were there as well. Um, and it was good humoured. And um, he then incorporated the, uh, the, the results of those actions into the shows that he then toured around the country. Um, and I'm very proud that I took part in that and I constantly refer back to it when I think about my political journey because we, 
okay, we might get elected. We may, maybe we're going to end up as councillors or MPs, MEPs, police and crime commissioners. But we should never forget those of us who are activists, that we are activists first and foremost. And that's where we always have to be. We have to always go back to our activist roots wherever we end up um, in our political journeys. Um, the other story is in my community that I was living in. I was living in an ex-Coldfield community, Labour Council. I'm not going to say who, where or anything. They decided to bring in participatory budgeting. Uh, some of you might know about it. It's a Brazilian model supposed to be, uh, you know, very inclusive. And what they did was to choose to put on the participatory budgeting exercise in a venue that was not accessible. And it happened on a day when it snowed. And disabled groups of disabled people had put forward their own projects that day to be voted upon for some of the funding. And of course, they couldn't get there. They couldn't get there because the weather was really bad, because the transport system's really crap, okay? And the venue itself was not properly accessible. And I called out that council um, on the basis of the equality duty for what they did. And I had to call them out because the disabled community themselves are so bloody exhausted from the process of just trying to get by each day that when I was saying, shall we do something about this? They were going, no, just let it go, just let it go. And I think what I've learned is that we, we, people like me, have to stand by people whose lives are so, uh, like the time it takes up to do all this ridiculous bureaucracy in order just to get what you are, what you should be getting in order to survive, means that people don't have the energy and the resources, the time, um, the ability, the money to do the things that need to be done. So I think it's very important that we are prepared to, to, to be in solidarity and to do what it takes. Um, th this othering that has happened, which is really scary, we're finding right across the world that all our rights are being attacked. So we have to take, uh, we have to stand in solidarity with other people whose rights are being attacked, so the LGBT community, women, children, refugees. I think it's really important that we, that we do that. But um, intersectionality is also really important. So I've been really proud in the European Parliament, for example, to welcome a group of disabled um, women to an event that my brilliant femme, uh, uh, Gypsy Romani, uh, MEP friend Soraya from Sweden hosted. So this is how I met the Sisters of Frida, by the way. I didn't meet them in the UK. I met them when they came out to the European Parliament. And to um, understand the, uh, the multiple forms of discrimination that people experience when they identify as many other Okay, and that's really important. I don't think, obviously, this government doesn't get it at all. They absolutely do not understand. They're trying to put everybody in a box and they want to keep you in that box. They want to divide all of us. But we have to find ways of coming together um, wherever people are being oppressed. You know, and if it's good for disabled people, it's good for us. So if we make, uh, if we make policy that's good for disabled people, then it's good for all of us. We have to understand that. I work on, on the FEM committee as well as the uh, Education and Culture Committee, and I know that if we make good policy for women, it's good for men too. So we have to be saying these aren't just for a section of society. This is about all of us at the end of the day. Um, just to talk a little bit about war and disaster, um, 
I'm, on, I'm a MEP uh, on the delegation for relations with Africa, Caribbean and Pacific countries and also Bosnia, Herzegovina and Kosovo. So I work in war-torn communities as a representative um, for the European Parliament and I was in Haiti last December and there had been no provision for disabled people whatsoever in Haiti. Then they had the earthquake. Right? Then they understood they had to do something because suddenly they had a huge proportion of people in their society from all levels of society who were suddenly not able to do their jobs, to access the services, to move around. So the sector, the, if you like, the, the, they got organised and they have managed to do a really canny thing which is that they've put their disability organisation into the government office. That's where they are, right? They're, they're never quite sure whether or not they're going to be able to continue. But they've got all that learning. They've stuck it inside the government office. Um, as well as war and conflict, we've got, um, we've got um, terrible situations, for example, in Palestine and Kashmir, where... Uh, the forces are using gas canisters, pellet guns in Kashmir. And we're seeing that people, for example, in Kashmir, young people being blinded by the pellet guns. And I've certainly been to villages in Palestine where people are now lifetime uh, wheelchair users as a result of the conflict and the uh, violence that they've experienced. Um, in the EU, we use the social model. I'm really proud that that's what my parliament does. The social model of disability came from the EU and we are going to be under attack from this Tory government if we come out of the Charter of Fundamental Rights. And as, you know, as our government is deciding that it wants to water down our rights and take away our rights, okay, the EU is making more progressive legislation all the time about disability. Not just about disability, but last year in Gothenburg, at the Gothenburg Summit, which we were not at because apparently we're not doing social policy anymore, the social pillar for the EU was adopted. So the EU will progress on all these matters and we will row back. So I am, and I want to, I'd like to see our leaders, our leadership fight Brexit for your sake, for the sake of disabled people. Um, Nothing about us without us should include paid consultancies for disabled people. I'm fed up with focus groups that ask disabled people to come and give their advice about how things should be done. People who are experts and experts of their own experiences should be paid for that, okay? That's a job. That's not... <laughs> Consultancies are great, aren't they? Everybody's putting money into consultancies. But it come, when it comes to the real people who are experiencing those situations, who are fighting those battles, they need to be paid for their experience. Uh, we've got something called SDG Watch. Who was asking about the schools? Um, yeah, SDG Watch, okay? So SDG Watch uh, uh, means um, that we've got a network of civil society organisations who are watching to see whether or not the work that we're doing within the European Parliament and within the EU uh, fulfils and ticks the SDGs. So we've got a watch on it with a civil society organisation. Uh, I'm concerned about hierarchies within the disability field. I don't very often see people with learning disabilities at any of the events that I'm at, uh, but we do support disabled people in the European Parliament. We had brilliant meetings with learning disabled there, and um, we have assemblies for disabled people, 
Uh, we are having a, a university for, um, in February. Sorry, it's called a university, but it's not. If you want to know more about that and how you could come to that, it's just a big event in the European Parliament for all kinds of oppressed people who are suffering from poverty and deprivation. Um, and the Erasmus Plus programme has been an incredible programme, not just for clever middle-class students who would be going abroad anyway, but it has supported loads and loads of disabled young people to come across borders. And one of them is an amazing uh, group of students from Stockport with autism who took part in an Erasmus Plus programme and subsequent to that have set up their businesses, have got work experience, um, work experience placements and doing all sorts of amazing things. Now, that, that's not happening to them here in the UK, right, with, uh, with, our, with our government doing that. That's happening because the EU is fighting for that for all young people. Um, and we've got so little understanding in this country about what the EU gives us, right? And the, I have heard even Labour MPs talk about the Erasmus programme as if it's just something for students wanting to go off and get PhDs. No harm meant, Miro. But it's the plus bit on Erasmus Plus is for all the others. It's for all the hard-to-reach kids, all the deprived kids, all the people who would never have those opportunities. So we've got to stand up for those. Right, I'm going to finish now. All right. Right. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, I'm going to have one, one quick question first. In, in, no, we'll come back to that in a minute. But the guy in the red at the back was next, up the top there. And then uh, I'm going to have the final speaker, and then we've got two questions from over here. Okay? Go. Um, I just wanted to ask about uh, the difference, well, sort of two points, but the first point is the difference between uh, visible disability and non-visible disability. And I think it's easier to spot dis um, discrimination against visible disability than it, than it is against non-visible disability. And that kind of feeds into the, the second point, which is sometimes I feel like um, uh, disabled people, for, for disabled people, it's, uh, or people with disabilities, it's um, difficult to form romantic relationships with people who aren't um, part of the disabled community mm -hmm. because of sort of un understood uh, discrimination on uh, and different ways of thinking. Um, and it, it's in a sense forms a sort of social Darwinism in that it, it, it means that I, I, disabled people marry other disabled people instead of having relationships with pe people or elsewhere in the community. And I just wanted to ask, uh, just by a show of hands, if uh, there's any disabled people here who feel like they've uh, experienced uh, over-judgmentalness from, or, or difficulty forming relationships with people neurotypical or not, not part of the disabled community. Mm. Uh, mm. Mm. Thank, thanks for the question. Uh, I, I, we won't do a show of hands because I think it's safe to say we probably all have it, to varying degrees. So it's just, you know, and there is no difference between invisible and, and visible. There is socially and actually that's what we've got to fight to change so that actually it's all 
included in the struggle and the battle for equality and change. So thank you. Um, I, the, the last bit of it was, it, the, it's also the difference, but it's not something, there, there's things you can legislate against and then there are things that are difficult or impossible to legislate against. And with something like this, it's, I think it's more about raising awareness and challenging people's definitions of what's attractive and what's not attractive rather than trying to legislate to say about who should people who people should be dating absolutely be. education is key awareness uh, legislation I personally would put a bit lower down than education and information uh, but it's all part of the same kind of pattern and process and map that we've got to follow so absolutely thank you and representation as well, that's, that's important. And visibility, all of those things across the board, absolutely. Thank you. I'm now going to let Simon, who is our final speaker, and then at the end we've got time for a couple of questions over here. And so I shall now hand you over to Simon McEwen. Thank you. Uh, afternoon, everybody. Uh, this was a presentation that, that was supposed to be with uh, some images. Um, so it's quite difficult to do it to such a large group of people without... So I'm very interested in history, representation, and a lot of the things they've been discussing. Now, I don't know if you can see on this, you can see normal cars from the 1970s, and in the middle, you'll see what's called an Invercar. So if you were disabled in the 1970s, 1960s, 1950s, um, you received, or could receive, beneficially from the National Health Service, and before that, from the Ministry of Pensions in the UK, you would receive a vehicle like this. Now, these vehicles were everywhere. Um, it's difficult to think that the government would uh, do that. But in the 19... When the, uh, the scheme finished in 1975, 1976, there were 25,000 vehicles on the road. Uh, the image would have shown you, the images that I did have would have shown you these vehicles at football matches. People would drive onto the pitch side and watch a football match. They were literally all over, um, all over the UK. So I want to pick up on a few things that, that people have mentioned. Uh, for instance, disability in war. So the invalid carriages, one of the reasons why I'm interested in them is uh, I have 25 of them. Um, there's only 400 left in the world. Most of them were destroyed in the 1970s uh, when the scheme ended. Uh, the government, <coughs> pardon me, the government decided, following a campaign by disabled people, to, to give in to the campaign to essentially uh, switch away from these vehicles to mortability. And so people went from driving a three-wheeled vehicle that didn't allow you to take your family anywhere. So what we have is a history of, a history of um, systematic equality, but actually an inequality. And I'm really passionate that people know our history, know disabled history, and actually learn how the government has treated dis disabled people in the past so that we're aware of how it can uh, affect our future. Um, the government, using the government scientific scientific division, I, I, I can't remember the precise name, but they've got a, the documents for this, um, 
they developed a three-wheeled vehicle. Now, the reason why it was three-wheeled goes back to the 1870s, back to 1820, when in Britain we developed the bath chair, which was a wicker basket chair that generally middle-class people used because they were quite expensive, and you got pushed around Bath and Spa towns like Harrogate, you went to the seaside in them, and you, and you were pushed by a servant. Now, that was three-wheeled. Over time, the three-wheeled vehicle started to become covered in wood and then later in canvas to protect you from the weather. So post-World War I and post-World War II, the government also provided these vehicles free via the Ministry of Pensions to people injured in, in the war. Now, there was 20 million, up to 20 million people injured in World War I, uh, disabled by World War I, uh, uh, more precisely, up to 20 million people. Enormous numbers of people were disabled in World War II. This is globally. And the British government reacted, or the Ministry of Pensions reacted, and provided with the Red Cross. They actually just put a, a, a motor vehicle on the back of a bath chair. Bizarrely, nobody turned around and said, why are we giving a three-wheeled vehicle to uh, literally thousands and thousands of disabled users? These vehicles turned over, um, and many people were killed in them. There was... Um, at least two or three hundred turnovers per year. At least ten to fifteen people died in these vehicles. They set fire. They crashed. Essentially, you were driving a piece of glass. So, if you were in a collision with a mini or any of the other vehicles that I showed you there, you would be injured, if not killed. Uh, I grew up next to my grandfather. He used these vehicles, and that's why uh, I'm interested in them. Um, so, what I've done is I've set up a a heritage lottery funded project to actually re-establish their history. So as part of Data Fest, which was mentioned earlier, I'll be showing a vehicle at um, the Museum of Liverpool. I'll be showing, them, showing vehicles at St George's Hall. And it's about what was mentioned by many of the panellists earlier. It's about being heard, about remembering the struggles of the past, remembering the independent living movement kind of uh, emancipation of the 1970s. These vehicles were dangerous, but they also were the first vehicles that allowed disabled people to, to be independent. So my grandfather needed the vehicle, despite the fact that he couldn't take his wife or his children anywhere, because it was a single drive-only vehicle. Um, so it is about having our voices heard more loudly. Um, it's about remembering our history. If we look at the history of the vehicles, they are... Um, one of the vehicles, well, one of the key vehicles was made by a very, very famous brand called AC. AC in the 1970s made Britain's fastest sports car. It was called the AC Cobra. Now, if anybody's got lots and lots and lots of money in this room and they like motor vehicles, they would be quite happy to buy the AC Cobra. It's a gorgeous vehicle. I'm not a petrol head, but it's one, if you saw a classic car from the 1970s, you'd be very happy with it. AC also made, also made, the, uh, the Mark 70 and the other uh, disability vehicles at that time. Now, you can find out in the motor in, uh, in, motor in history how many, how many uh, AC Cobras were made. So AC made the slowest vehicle on the roads at the, at, at, in the 1970s. They also made the fastest. We know exactly how many fast cars were made, but no records were kept of the, the slowest vehicle, the, the vehicle that crashed, the vehicle that injured disabled people. So... Our history forms part of normal history, normative values. We, we used the same engines, we were propelled in the same way, but we weren't given the same status. We were given a blue 
status, which you can see on the you can see on the, the laptop there. So what I'm really interested in is that we actually consider our history and see how the things that are being talked about here today did occur in the 1970s and that we actually present this history back and actually say to people, look, you've done this before. So when we talk about nothing for us without us, well, the, the invalid carriage history represents a classic case of a government, a benign scheme intended to assist dis disabled people becoming a disastrous scheme over its 50, 80 year inception. The longest running scheme in Britain, not in longest running scheme of its type in the world and also you know it ran essentially from 1918 to 1975 hugely important scheme very revolutionary very beneficial but one that was campaigned against very successfully by disabled people to lead to mobility so i think we have to be aware of our history uh, paul mentioned the uh, the bbc by being aware of our history we can look at what the BBC do. I've written uh, as an academic uh, at part of Teesside University uh, that the BBC is failing. If you actually, I've spent the time to read the BBC Charter. It's a very detailed document, but it's actually very, very easy to actually pick out and say, you don't do this, you don't do that. It's in your charter and you're failing it. And that's where our history isn't represented as disabled people at all, or our day-to-day -day lives. Um, just to finish, you can see the, the vehicles, as I say, in Data Fest this year. Please come along in Liverpool. But also, uh, it was mentioned uh, by one of the panellists who's just left, that the contribution to, to, to art and people with learning disabilities. Uh, I'm working with Heart of Glass in St Helens. And on December the 8th, there will be one of the biggest outdoor events in the UK this year. That event is made with... Uh, a cohort of learning disabled uh, adults. They've worked with me over the last year to create one of the biggest outdoor events that's disability led. So please come along to that. That's on December the 8th and it'll close the whole of St. Helens down. And so there is a lot of other things going on within the art sector that can viably challenge some of the problems that we've discussed today. And I just want to end on one thing. I was actually quite shocked that our, ME, that our MP there said that at this conference, this was the only disability event. I think that's an absolute disgrace. Um, I, I'm appalled by it. And I think that... We, right, it was just that... Uh, the, the, There you go. <laughs> but even, even so, even so, two events at such a major event, you know, the number of MPs she mentions and so on, and that, that shows you the difference where, you know, where you've got in the 1970s headline figures of disability, you know, the, the motor in history that I'm discussing here was a front page of daily newspapers. It was in The Guardian. It was, it was big, big news. On that, I'm going to finish. Thank you, Simon. Now, thank you very much. Because uh, we have to be out in seven minutes, two questions. One from Bob over there. 
probably going to be pushing it to get here. You should put your hand up earlier. And then another one from over there. So, so. Hi, Hi. My question is quite simple. Why didn't anyone ever talk about capitalism? Capitalism? Yeah, because that's what the sub-model is about. It isn't about discrimination. It isn't about prejudice. The sub-model is about the need to take down capitalist society because in the social model there's a difference between impairment, i.e. cerebral poverty that I've got, and disability, which is the social restriction created by the system structures culture and values of given capitalist society. So disability poverty is, if done correctly, an anti-capitalist movement. Until we understand that, we've been talking about trying to integrate or include disabled people that is geared up historically to keep us out. That is ridiculous. We need to transform society. That is what the Central Movie 40 years ago when I first got involved in it. And unless we keep that original idea where Whatever word you want to use. Thank you, Bob. Did, uh, did the guy in the red want to ask a question? How do I follow that? My question is very simple. Everyone in this room, I suspect that Labour councils across the country, or a lot of them are doing quite good things. But I do not think there is a way yet to share that. So I'd like to see some way, if your council is doing a good thing, make sure that other places know about it as well. Because that's just something we can do by sharing. Okay, thank you for that. Anybody else with a very quick question? Uh, yes, the woman in blue there. Yeah. Wait for the microphone. No, can you hear me? We can hear you. No, no, she needs the microphone. Oh, okay. Is that okay? Yes. Okay. Okay. Right. Um, Some time back, um, Marcia said about the party being committed to ending or the um, assess um, assessment things. What she didn't say, unless I wasn't listening, is the party committed to immediately abolition of the universal credit, which affects not only us, not only does not only disabled people, but just about everybody else, the Tories have called hostile environment people, because I think that's a really crucial one. But I don't think she said that the party said that. She didn't. Uh, so do we, have we got to campaign for it? Yes. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Uh, I'm going to thank you all. Uh, too late, I'm afraid, sorry. You, did you want to ask a question? 
because you can't. Sorry. No, no, sorry. I'm being told behind you I have to get out. Uh, so thank you all for coming. I think the key thing that we all need to remember that hatred, discrimination and marginalisation is a choice they make against us. Thank you all for coming.